Our scripture is found uh, printed for you there. It's from uh, Exodus as we continue now to study this book of the Bible. Exodus chapter 1, verses 15 through 22. This is God's holy word. Then the king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shiphrah, and the other was named Puah. And he said, When you are helping the Hebrew women to give birth and see them upon the birth stool, if it is a son, then you shall put him to death. But if it is a daughter, then she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt had commanded them, but let the boys live. So the king of Egypt called for the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this thing and let the boys live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not as the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife can get to them. So God was good to the midwives, and the people multiplied and became very mighty. Because the Lord, I'm sorry, because the midwives feared God, he established households for them. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, saying, Every son who is born to you, every son who is born, you are to cast into the Nile, and every daughter you are to keep alive. And thus far, God's holy, inspired, and infallible word. Thanks be to God. Let's pray once more. Father, we approach your word carefully, but joyfully. We approach your word with expectation. And ask, Lord, that You would do great things and help us to see wonders out of Your Word. We pray that our lives will be different because we have been with You and heard Your voice. In Jesus' name, Amen. Genesis is the perfect book to begin the Bible. It tells us where we came from, why the human race is in such trouble, and God's unfolding plan to redeem a people for Himself. Uh, Some years ago, I preached through Genesis, and I was almost tempted to start it again, but uh, we'll maybe get to that at another time. Now, we're going to look at the second book of Moses, the book of Exodus. As I said last time, Exodus is about redemption the rescue of the Israelites from Egyptian slavery and their establishment as a great nation that would be instrumental in bringing to mankind the law, the prophets, and the Messiah, God's ultimate solution to the deadly problem of sin. This morning we're going to look at the sovereignty of Jehovah God the fear of the Lord, the futility of resistance, and the reward of the righteous. Those are our four points today. So first, the, uh, the sovereignty of Jehovah God. And uh, for a text, we can simply look at the first verse of the passage, verse 15. And then the king of Egypt spoke... Back in Virginia, where my wife is from, there's a rather well-known university called William and Mary. 
And it's named for uh, two regents of England who came to power uh, after a rather troubled period. And uh, they were named co-regents. Now, I don't know how that worked exactly. I would think they might have had a few disagreements about uh, what kind of rule they would have and and what uh, commands they would give. But it seemed to work. Uh, Neither one of them lived particularly long after they uh, became co-regents of uh, England. But it did work to some extent. But I want to tell you today that there is no co-regency in this universe. Just because Pharaoh speaks sitting on the throne of Egypt, one of the most, if not the most, powerful nation on earth in that day, that doesn't mean that his word was never in dispute and was always obeyed and he never had a difficulty in ruling. God is the sovereign. Jehovah, the true God, the one true God, has no co-regent. He rules and when He speaks, His Word will be carried out. Oh yes, there are those who do not agree and who rebel and resist. And later on we'll talk about the futility of resistance. But uh, God's Word always gets done by His way in His time. And we will see that ultimately, if not immediately. Long before Jacob, and of course Jacob and Israel are the same person, and the children of Jacob are the children of Israel, long before that God was working on His plan of redemption. We can even say rightly that it was a plan formulated before the foundation of the world. And He determined not to save a bunch of quote, good unquote people, but rather He would redeem lost sinners. And the means by which they would be redeemed would, from His point of view, be the sacrifice of His Son on the cross. From a human point of view, it would be the exercise of faith and trust in Him. Today is known in some parts of the Christian world as Reformation Sunday. And one of the chief points that the Protestants made at that time was that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, through Christ alone, according to the Scriptures alone. And all the glory for that belongs to God alone. Again, emphasizing His sovereignty and the way that His plan works So to that end, and this is very early of course in the history of things, he led Jacob and his family, numbered to be about 70 people, to Egypt for their immediate relief from famine, but ultimately led them into slavery. And of course we might ask, well, if he's so good and and if he's kind, why did he lead this people into slavery? Well, because he wanted a redeemed people. He wanted a people that he had saved. Not a people that had impressed him so much that he would say, I can't help but save them. They're just so good. No, he took a people who really had no innate goodness, who, once we look at their lives, 
had done all kinds of things displeasing to the Lord, but He saved them by grace. He saved them according to His plan that He should have a people who formerly were condemned and lost and made them His people with whom He would live for all eternity. Now as the children of Israel, the children of Jacob, found themselves in Egyptian slavery, they would uh, well ask the question, well, who is sovereign? Who does rule? Uh, It appears to us that everything that Pharaoh says seems to be obeyed. And we find ourselves without any recourse except to go along with it, to yield to it. And yet there was some kind of cry that went up to the Lord in, in the third chapter the Lord will say to Moses, I've heard their cry. Now, he may have meant there that uh, he heard the, the pain that they were expressing, but I think it must be true also to some extent that he heard their prayers. He heard them even if their relation to God was weak and lacking. He heard them and it was always his purpose to answer that prayer and to save them. Who is sovereign? Is it Pharaoh? Is it another king? Is sovereignty shared around by various leaders in the world? Who rules? Is it Pharaoh? Or is it Jehovah? The king of Israel issued these sovereign commands. To the midwives, kill all the baby boys. To the people in general, throw them all in the Nile River. For I have spoken, I am your sovereign, I am Pharaoh. But long before God spoke, that is before Pharaoh had anything to say, before he was even on the scene, before he was even as one politician said one time, the twinkling in the eye of his father, God said to Abram, and this is from Genesis 15, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, where they will be enslaved and oppressed 400 years. But I also will judge the nation whom they will serve, and afterward they will come out with many possessions. God's sovereign word is what would happen. Pharaoh's demands for the lives of of the male children of the Israelites perhaps worked in some cases, but it didn't work altogether. And so they became what's called a mighty people. A people of great strength, a people of influence, a people that scared the Egyptians, that scared the Egyptian king to death. Because nothing, nor anyone, will overrule the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Who is the sovereign? Who rules? Whose word cannot be turned back? It is the Lord God, Jehovah God, the God of our fathers. And secondly, I want to talk for a moment about the fear of the Lord. In verse 17, we read, But the midwives feared God. In verse 21, because the midwives feared God, He established households for them. 
The fear of the Lord, says Psalm 111, verse 10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. You're really not going anywhere. You're not going to succeed in anything, at least in anything that lasts, unless you fear the Lord. Now, fear can be simply reverence. In some cases in the Scripture, you have people being encouraged and and, uh, led to fear the Lord in that sense, to reverence the Lord, uh, to not presume upon Him or act arrogant before Him, but to reverence Him. And that has to do with sovereignty also. But then there's uh, what we might call the, the terror of the Lord, which is a term that's used in Scripture also, in which you're afraid what God will do to you if you continue to disobey Him and turn from Him will not listen to Him. And both of these things, of course, are matters to be considered in this book of Exodus. The uh, enslaved Hebrews, though they had sort of wandered from the faith of their fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they had not lost all connection to the faith of their fathers. There was some remembrance, some teaching among them. And how it reached Shifra and how it reached Pua, we don't know exactly, but we can assume that their parents and the parents before them, generations before those, had passed this along. And maybe they didn't get it exactly right. And maybe they didn't insist on the kind of reverence or the kind of true fear that they should have, but they had it enough to where we are told they did fear the Lord. So they hadn't lost all connection. Thank God for that. And and we can thank God that though it seems sometimes that those who've decided that they're going to destroy every vestige of the God of the Bible from the minds of people will succeed, they never will. They never will. God will always keep some connection to His people and to those who have generation after generation made some attempt to do that which pleases God. It's interesting that uh, we don't find what uh, we call the Tetragrammaton, or the the name Jehovah or Yahweh, anywhere until we get to chapter 3, when the Lord Jehovah deals with Moses. So they're always talking about God in general terms, Elohim, the just God in, in that broad way of, of putting it. And one of the things that uh, this would indicate, because you find this name Jehovah throughout Genesis, is that uh, they had lost the idea of a covenant relationship, that God had established a special relationship between Himself and a certain group of people. Now this didn't mean that there were not other people in the world who recognized there was one God and He should be worshipped. But it does mean that this particular group of people had had begun to lose touch. They had begun to wander from it and they had no real covenant awareness in their lives. I belong to God. I have an obligation to God. But He has an obligation to me and He will not fail to carry out His obligations. So we're in that that period that's leading up to chapter 3 where this covenant name comes into play again. And yet, we have these two women, the midwives, fearing 
the Lord. And we must assume that it was true also for some of the other Israelites that uh, they also had some fear of the Lord, though at the same time there were many, I'm sure, that uh, had, had really cut off their relationship with God. So it's a kind of mixed situation. Now, the Mosaic Law, well, that's going to come with Moses just by the descriptive term that we use there, but Moses is not really on the scene at this point. And yet, there's a fear of the Lord. How so? How is that possible? Well, because the Bible says that the law of God is written on the heart to begin with. That it's put down first on those tablets of stone and then in other forms of writing and so forth later on for the people to refer to and to know and to have a, a more exact understanding. But the law is really written on the heart. And may I say it was written on the Egyptians' hearts also, but they were further from grasping that and following that than were the Israelites because they didn't have those generations that passed along the truth, that passed along the reality of the one true God. And so the Egyptians were worshipping frogs and all kinds of uh, other idolatrous uh, matters in, in their life, but the Israelites, though they may have been drawn into some of that idolatry, they basically still held to the idea that there was the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And that law written on their hearts had a greater reality and a greater importance. And thus these midwives feared God more than they feared Pharaoh. Feared God more than they feared the animosity of the Egyptians. They feared offending God. And how we need that in our lives, how we need that in our country, how we need that in the world. Where the law is written, yes, still on people's hearts, but do they fear Him? Do they reverence Him? Do they fear the terror of the Lord? And so these women purposely, not just accidentally or as a possibility, but purposely let the boys live because they feared God. Dear friends, our society could do with even a little fear of God and a lot less fear of God's rivals. Fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Thirdly, we have the futility of resistance. You may have heard the story of King Canute who took his throne down to the water's edge and commanded the tide not to come in and get his feet wet. Now the truth of that story, if it is true at all, it may just be a, a sort of a myth, but was that he wanted to show his courtiers who were flattering him with all kinds of, oh you're so great, oh you're so wonderful, you can do anything. He wanted to show them that he wasn't that way. That's gotten changed a little bit to where he really thought that he could tell the tide to come in or not. It doesn't matter which way. The point of the story is that there are things that you can't resist. You can go down here to Huntington Beach and tell the tide not to come in, but it's going to come in. It's futile to resist it. 
Shakespeare in uh, his play Julius Caesar has Brutus speak like this, There is a tide in the affairs of men which taken at the flood leads on to fortune, omitted all the voyage of their life is bound in shallows and in miseries. On such a full sea are we now afloat, and we must take the current when it serves or lose our ventures. Well, Brutus uh, turned out to be the loser in the end, but his words make sense. That there is a tide that you can't resist. Or if you do resist it, you're bound to drown. You're bound to lose everything. You're bound to sink. And you see, God has determined the course of history. He's not sitting in heaven saying, I wonder what's going to happen next. He determined the course of Egyptian history. It first comes to our view in Joseph and the uh, bringing Joseph himself out of an uh, an enslavement into the highest position in Egypt short of the kingship. It can be seen in in lots of things that happened in Egypt. It can be seen in all the things that happened in Israel up to this point and many years beyond this point. This is the tide. The tide is what God has determined and you're not going to be able to resist it. Egypt's Pharaoh had neither the wisdom of Canute nor the confidence of Brutus. And he failed ultimately. But he tried to resist. And he saw the Israelites growing greater and stronger. And as we said last time, he became very afraid of that. He was uh, overcome psychologically with the fear that the Israelites would take over from him, remove him from his throne. And so he started this whole business of their enslavement, and, and then now he's saying to the midwives, be sure you kill all these babies. And by the way, there were more than just two midwives. Maybe these were the most prominent ones. Maybe these were uh, sort of occupying positions of, of administration and leadership. But the, the word for, was for all midwives, kill the boys. Don't let them live. But as we said, Egypt's Pharaoh had neither the wisdom of Canute nor the confidence of Brutus. His destiny was multiple, multiple disappointments. Disobedience, lies, disaster, they all lay in His destiny. For so had God ordained His will. And when Moses finally comes to, to meet with the Lord, the Lord says, it's, it's going to happen this way. Pharaoh will not give in to you. Why? Aren't you persuasive, Moses? Isn't Aaron, your well-spoken brother, able to convince him? This doesn't matter, God said. He won't do it. He won't change. Why? Because this is God's plan. In Psalm 2, verse 4, We read, He who sits in the heavens laughs, and the Lord holds them in derision. Speaking of His opponents, speaking of those who will not go along with the tide, the tide of God's purpose. Later the Apostle Paul will confess his own weakness, but he says this, he says, When I am weak, then I am strong. Meaning that if I go with what God has purposed, 
if I don't resist the will of God, then I will truly become successful. I will truly win out. But if, if I resist it, I'll be in trouble. And even uh, Paul's teacher Gamaliel said at one point, you better be careful in dealing with these Christians because you may be found out to be in opposition to God trying to work against His plan and purposes. Israel was weak. It was enslaved. Oh yes, there was a lot of them and, and we're told they were mighty in the sense that there was a lot of them. But they were weak. They didn't have the weapons. They didn't have the chariots and horses. They were weak. But Moses will come along and say, yes, we're weak now, but you haven't seen anything yet. Or as uh, Al Jolson said one time, you ain't seen nothing yet. God is going to do something mighty. When you are weak, and you say all you can do is follow the Lord, then you become strong. Don't be fooled by today's arrogance. Don't be led astray by those who will never yield to the Lord. They will only disappoint you as they disappointed Pharaoh and the Egyptians. Now finally, there's the reward of the righteous. These uh, midwives were given households. What does that mean? Well, after delivering all these babies, what about their own children? What about their own houses? God established their households. God is good all the time, but He's especially good to those who love Him, to those who are called according to His purpose, Romans 8.28. The midwives, maybe they didn't have it all just right. Maybe they weren't fully informed as they should be. We don't know all these things, but what we do know is that when they feared God more than they feared Pharaoh, God blessed them. And we can assume that if they hadn't feared God, their households would never have been established and their lives would never have been improved. God is good all the time. The midwives were able to see the fruit of their endeavors because they were midwives. They could see all these babies that were born, but how much more glorious and fulfilling was it when God established their households? And then something that's only implied here is that how much did they grow spiritually when they found out that by reverencing God and not uh, accepting that He would just pass by their indiscretions and, and going against what was written on their hearts, that uh, God would bless them. They were spiritually rewarded inwardly. Perhaps drew closer to God than they had ever been in their lives. Now, eternal salvation is not a reward. There's nothing you can do to make God save you. But if He does save you, He will fill your life with fruit, with blessing. I close with Luke 18, verses 29 and 30, where Jesus said to some of His disciples, Truly I say to you, there is no man who has left house or parents or brethren or wife or children for the kingdom of God's sake, who shall not receive manifold more in this present time and in the world to come, eternal life. And that's God's message to us today as well. God is sovereign. The fear of the Lord is a good thing to have in your life. And failure to fear is a bad thing. 
that uh, the, the Lord God will indeed provide and keep His people, even reward them. We can be confident in that, and that's where I leave you today. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and lean not unto your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will direct your paths. Let us pray. Thank You, Heavenly Father, for this lesson today from the book of Exodus. Help us, Lord, to be good citizens and and do the best we can for the world around us, but at the same time, never to yield to its idolatry and its wickedness, but to trust the Lord and find ultimately that His purpose for us is good and will bring us true life and peace and happiness. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.